0: Would you take God's word and turn to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 1. For those that are visiting or new online, we started this series last week in the book of Daniel. We're looking at verses 8 through 16 as you're turning there. Uh, Book giveaway. I've been giving books away, kind of theology books about Christ. This one is called Christ Among Other Gods, A Defense of Christ in an Age of Tolerance. So anybody like it to read it? We got two here. He points over there. OK, big Mike. Here you go. Good catch. Daniel 1, beginning of verse eight. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food, or with the wine that he drank. Therefore he asked the chief Then Daniel said to the steward of the chief of the eunuchs that assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of 10 days... It was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. This is God's word. You know, Daniel made a choice. I mean, the opening line is Daniel chose not to defile himself. Now, when you read into the story, you realize this could have been his last choice he ever made. It could be the end of the story. But yet, history tells us that he lived and had influence through four kings. There's two questions I want to begin with this morning. I guess it's really this evening, isn't it? Those that listen tomorrow will be here tomorrow morning. Here's the two questions. Can I be holy in my culture? Now, of course, we always say, yes, we can be holy, but what about our practice? And when you dig down and start thinking about this, beliefs have two aspects to them. They affirm mentally a particular truth, but they also affirm that people need to live that truth out. So in Eastern thought, it really wasn't a belief. If you said, yes, I believe it, but didn't practice it. So asking that question again, can I be holy in my culture? Now, in America, our dilemma is, if you listen to people long enough, today we see no correlation between those two ideas. And that's why we live in a blame-accused mentality where all our problems are solved if we just get rid of, end quote, those people. Second question, are we open to where God wants to lead us? Now, of course, last week we saw, and none of us want to be in this situation, I mean, none of us like getting carted off to Babylon. We don't like living in the middle of war, being torn from our families, thrown into another culture, indoctrinated. But we are not defined by our circumstances. Rather, we're defined by our trust and faith in the Lord of all creation. Amen? Amen? There's a new book out. Now, I haven't read it and I don't own it, but I heard a paragraph quoted out of it. It's called A Simple Guide to Experience Miracles. It's written by J.P. Moreland. But in this book, he makes this provocative claim. Listen to this quote. He says, 95% of what average evangelical church accomplishes in a given year could be explained even if God didn't exist. That makes me think. Now, in other words, what he's saying is this. Too many of our sermons, too many of our programs Too much of our worship could be explained away due to skillful leadership, public speaking, and production quality. No work of God required. And so I got thinking about grace, and I got thinking about my life. What is it that I give over to God? What kind of choices that if God doesn't show up, it could be the end of my story? You know, Daniel makes a choice. The results were out of his control. He needed the work of God. And, and you might say, well, it, it's kind of silly about the food. And in Jewish tradition, there were certain kinds of foods they could eat, but also how the food was prepared was important. And there's a high probability that the food, first of all, was sacrificed to false gods, but also in the eating of that food, it was like an offering or a worship to those false gods. And so Daniel says, no. Now, we read that text and we read narratives into it simply that don't exist. For instance, I hear people say, well, this tells us we shouldn't eat meat. We should only eat vegetables. I mean, that's not what is being said here. (laughs) Food probably here was an act of worship. And so Daniel says, I do not want to be part of that. And he draws a line in the sand. And God had to intervene. I mean, it was risk. He had no idea the consequences. I mean, later on, and in fact, the eunuch kind of hints to this, you know, we find out that King Nebuchadnezzar had a very violent temper when he didn't get his way. And many times when he got mad, someone died. And, you know, I look at Daniel, and Daniel isn't this defiant, the way we think of defiance. And I think this is where we get in trouble at times. There's a difference between defiance with grace and defiance where we take matters into our own hands. I mean, defiance with grace really takes time in two ways. One is we seek God's wisdom, his word, his community. I'm always amazed where people make major decisions in their life without ever involving the community of Jesus. It just amazes me. They kind of pull away, isolate, and they say, okay, we're going to make this decision all alone." Secondly, defiance with grace, we have to seek what's behind the curtain, and that takes time. We have to investigate, got to get the backstory, the details. I mean, here's an example. This past week, a prominent news reporter, in their speech, called out, and I'm going to go and quote, white Christian conservatives, and they said, white Christian conservatives are selfish people. They cannot play well with others, and they take offense at everything. And you start hearing this, and of course, we can react, and we can tweet and comment back on Facebook and get into a shouting match over social media, and I advise you not to do that because it doesn't get you anywhere. You could play the victim and sit there and cry and say, how could they say those mean things about me because I'm not like that at all? Now, remember I said last week we are more than conquerors, and sometimes we act like we're conquered. We could even play to the misconceptions, and we could say, you know, you're right, and I'm sorry, and now, if I could, I'd love to sit down with that person and ask several questions with a gracious spirit. I think the first question I'm going to ask is this. Can you give me a specific firsthand example of what you're saying? You know, where have you personally witnessed, witnessed this? And there might be a backstory to that. Second question I would ask is, what do you think Christians believe? Because I know when I run into people who want to condemn Christians and I ask them that question, uh, what they tell me about Christians is things I don't believe. Third, I would simply say, are you aware of the charity work in America and around the world where Christians are engaged in? And then I would have specific, verifiable examples of the good works that are being done. I mean, here's why I say that. I had a conversation with a political leader in Lancaster City who would be on the opposite side of my political beliefs, and we had a 40-minute conversation about recovery and addiction. And, you know, we agreed on almost everything. But here is my take-home. Here's what they said at the end of the conversation. I had no idea that a church would have this kind of ministry. And I thought, wow. Wow. There's a lot of misinformation, and what I understand is this person actually goes to church. So they're actually in a church thinking churches don't do this kind of thing. We live in an age of misinformation, and you can find anything you want to support whatever you want, and we have to be intentional, and we have to teach our kids how to be intentional to seek the truth. So we see Daniel doing this. I mean, he's respectful. He asks for a trial study. He knows God's has to show up in 10 days. He knows the end game for the eunuch is pleasing the king. And he had to be familiar with the rules of the court. And he wasn't this, hey, you can't make me. Rather, out of respect, and I might add Daniel and his friends had to have respect to the chief of the eunuchs. I mean, they had to have this relationship for even him to consider this in the first place. So I have to ask myself this week, are we living in such a way that if God doesn't show up, we could not be successful? Now, I'm not saying we're to be reckless. We're called to be a people of faith. and We live in such a way that people ask us, how can you have hope when I look at your circumstances? How can you love and forgive that person after what they did to you? Our our hope and love should be that dramatic according to the Spirit that people ask us why we have this. Now, last week, we began with this principle. We'll put it on the screen again. I said we need people who are aware of the dangers of trying to serve God in this world, and in spite of those dangers, refuse to compromise. And that takes courage because there's risk. We have to have the courage to ask where I've been compromised. And I want to look tonight at five principles from our story. Here's the first. Religious principles will be tested. Now, Daniel and his friends, they had certain biblical truths and convictions and traditions in a land where there's false gods, where where money and power worshiped. And you almost knew there's going to be a conflict I ask myself, why is it today in the church, in America, we expect ourselves to be the exception? Now, I know we don't like trouble. Nobody does. But doing the right thing, we can expect conflict. You know, Jesus himself writes these words, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. It's not because we were stupid and did things that it's going to cause that. It's just that we're following Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Courage and resolution are necessary in living for God. But that's the first. Religious principles will be tested. Number two, it's the importance of little things in our faithfulness. Now, Let's go back to the conversation around food. You might sit there and say, what's the big deal? I mean, is it really that important? In our culture, we're biased towards the big. Bigger is better. That's proof of success. We're we're biased towards the important. And of course, importance is determined by us. And we sit there and say, well, is really food a big deal? And we're biased towards the novel. We really get bored easily. But listen to what Jesus says when he was talking to the disciples. And this fascinates me. In Luke 16, verses 10 and 11, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. I mean, you get the principle, right? We don't look at the big things we're faithful in. He says, I want you to be faithful in just the everyday stuff. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Now, he uses the example of money. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to be, who will entrust you the true riches? And I sit there and say to myself in America today, one of the reasons why churches really aren't making a difference is because they don't even know how to handle their bank accounts. And that's what that's saying. So how do you live inside of everyday decisions? It matters. How do you spend and give your money? It matters. What about your words and your attitudes, your opinions? What about social media and cell phones? What about your ethics? This stuff we often consider little, it all matters. If we don't get the little stuff right, we'll never get the big stuff right. Right? Principle number three trials are preparation for future events. Now, this is something we know, but we fail to practice. Why? Because we don't like trials. (laughs) Instead of walking through the trial, we attempt to skirt the edges, to go around. In the book of Jeremiah, and here's the setting in Jeremiah 28, there's a prophet called Hananiah. And when you look at him, he was very dramatic in his visual presentation. So, I mean, when he stood up to spoke, he pulled out all the stops. I mean, it was just wonderful and glorious, very dramatic, drew crowds. And one day before an audience, he prophesied, and here's what he said, the yoke of King Nebuchadnezzar will be broke in two years. And of course, the people applauded that. We only have two more years of this trial. Now, Jeremiah was there probably never heard of Hananiah. There wasn't a book that he wrote, and there's a reason why. Jeremiah didn't say anything, and sometime later, God spoke to Jeremiah saying, listen, here's really what's going to happen. And he laid out the instruction to share with Israel. And he was asked to confront Hananiah because his prophecy was false. And he did that not in public, but he pulled him aside and said, listen, guy, you're in it for the show. You did that on your own accord, and you need to know there's a consequence. You're going to die. And Hananiah died within that year. But listen to the prophecy of Jeremiah about what was ahead. And again, this was given to the people in Jerusalem that were still there. The remnant was left. It was also sent by letter to the exiles. And you know, when they sent that to the exiles, it went through the king's court. And I can't imagine the king reading these words, but here's what was sent. Jeremiah 29, verse 10 verses. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is this was after King Jehoiani and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen, the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand, Elisha, the son of Shaphan. And there's a bunch of names there I'm not going to get into. But it says, the king of Judah sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And here's what it said. Okay, so the king's going to read this. Thus said the Lord of hosts. That's the one King Nebuchadnezzar said, I just conquered. And his stuff's in my depository to all the exiles to whom I've sent into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. And you notice he said, I sent, not, hey, Nebuchadnezzar took you. I mean, little words matter, don't they? He says, build houses, live in them, plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city. I mean, listen to what God is telling. He's laying out this strategy because they're going to be there for a while. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. And again, Nebuchadnezzar is reading this saying, wait a minute, um, you know, I'm the one that conquered Jerusalem. What do you mean this God sent them? And pray to the Lord on its behalf. And in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it's a lie. that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon. Okay, so he set the timeline. Not two, 70 years. I will visit you. And I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. I mean, he basically told King Nebuchadnezzar, (laughs) guess what? They're going home. I'm in charge, and you can't stop it. And then here's a verse we often quote, but I think we quote it out of context For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. 70 years of trials. And he lays out this strategy on how to live, and there's hope for the future. And here's what he's saying. I want you to be good citizens. I want you to, I want Babylon to be a better place because you are there. And I want, and since you're influencers in your families, I want you to marry and have a bunch of kids. Because that's how you keep the remnant and the stories about Jehovah alive. So think about the church for a moment. Think about the strategy for living here and now as Christians. He left us his word. He left us his spirit. He left us his church. And there's the macro purpose. It's the big overriding vision for everyone. Go and disciple. And there's the micro purpose. According to our gifts, our passions, our talents, and circumstances. See, the fact is we can't live without purpose. And God gives that to us in spades. But we will be tested. Trials will come. We must be faithful in the little things. And we have to live in such a way that God is necessary for our lives and not just for our salvation. And we have the hope that he is coming again. And, you know, let me say it this way. God has not called us to simply run around putting out fires of our culture. You know, the fires that our culture lights. He calls us to light our own fires. Amen? Here's the fourth principle. Grace is sufficient for all situations. I talked a little bit about this last week, but look at these verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 9 through 10. And this is where Paul has a trial. He has his thorn in his flesh. He prayed. God doesn't take it away, but here's what he said. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. We do not like to feel weak, do we? But God says, that's when I show up. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I'm weak, I'm strong. We don't like that last phrase, do we? Now, I call this practicing the Lordship of Christ over everything in our lives. And we're all missionaries. And the strategy is to have Christ followers in every walk of life. Wherever you're at, you get an example to show what Christ can do. We must walk the talk in the way we live. And here's the fifth. Fifth is the importance of humility. When I was working on a master's degree at Regent, Regent was one of the two schools that had the particular degree that I wanted, and it was the only Christian school that had it. There was a classmate I had, his name was Rex Miller. Now he gave this talk the one day I was there, and I sat there and I said to myself, he is the smartest, most intelligent, profound person I've ever met. He's smarter than the teachers. Now when you got to know him, and the teachers admitted, yeah, he knows more than we do. He was a successful business person. He had multiple degrees in communication theology. In his speech, and again, everyone knew he was the smartest person in the room. What impressed me was his lack of arrogance and humility and his demeanor. It floored me. I mean, he would submit himself to the rigors of this degree to learn more under people who knew less than him. Imagine that. Now, you might be sitting there saying, well, uh, I never heard of his name. He must not be all that smart. Well, you ever notice that God uses people that we don't necessarily know, and he uses them in ways that are not part of what I'm going to call the celebrity culture? I mean, he's working now down in D.C. in a think group that he influences some key, important people in our day. You know, our calling is to be known by God and not by humanity, man. Amen. So I see this kind of humility in Daniel and his friends. And, and later we see how they come out on top in spite of what we often call weakness. But all through the book of Daniel, we see respect and humility. We see how he has humility before the king and respect for the, before the king. And, and this is sorely needed in the American church. We've unrealistically grown to think that we know more than we do and that we think we are far more important than we are. In short, we become a people of, hey, look at me, instead of a people that says, hey, look at my Jesus. We hunger for our glory instead of the glory of God. But only Christ has the power to transform the world in Christ Jesus. And in Christ Jesus, we become a new creation. Amen? Amen. There's a question that Charles Colson asked. He wrote a book, title's called, How Now Shall We Live?, I'm going to invite the worship team up because I'm going to give the closing line of this book. If you put the quote on, I think I have it in there somewhere. Next screen. There it is. Here's what he says. If you don't know who Charles Colson is, he worked for Nixon, rose in power, got caught in a bad scandal, ended up in prison, found Jesus, and has spent working with prisoners for the rest of his life until the day he died. Amazing story. He says, how now shall we live? By embracing God's truth, understanding the physical and moral order he has created, lovingly contending for that truth with our neighbors and having the courage to live it out in every way of life, boldly and, yes, joylessly. Amen? Amen. Let's stand as we worship, and I want to pray with you before we sing. Father God, we thank you for your grace, and we thank you for the story of Daniel that gives us hope. I mean, we find him in incredible situations and circumstances, and yet he becomes a key influencer among the kings of four kingdoms. I pray for us, Lord, that we just take up the cross, we keep you in front of us, and we celebrate what you do among us and what you will do. Until we see you face to face, and we pray these things in your name. And everyone said, amen. Amen.